reading of the word this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then now face to face. Now I know in part, then I, show, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. <clears throat> so I don't know if you're familiar with the musician Nat King Cole. I follow him on Instagram. Um, anyways, I came across in, uh, in his Instagram post the other day, uh, one, of, one, of his, uh, one of his songs, he has many songs about love, um, but one of, his, one of his more famous songs is just the acronym LOVE, L-O-V-E, you're probably very familiar with that song, you probably heard it at a wedding, but one song that I wasn't quite familiar with that I came across uh, the other day was a song titled Too Young, and it has this great line that says this, this love will last, though the years may go. This love will last, though the years may go. And this is how a, a preacher's mind works, because I thought immediately, that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. But then I also thought, there are so many songs about love, Films and movies about love, books that are written about love, poems that are written about love. We're, we're, in, we're almost into February, which is, we would say, the month of love when we celebrate Valentine's Day. We're already seeing those things out in Target and on restaurant windows and things like that. And all of these things are all trying to, to get at its meaning, to get at the meaning of love. What is it? What is love? Uh, how, how do I get it? And then, and then once I have it, how do I keep it? But in our text, you begin to realize the reason Paul has written this part of his letter to the Corinthian church is because they actually do have it. They have this love that Paul is about to describe because they are in Christ. They are Christians. They are the church. They are the body of believers. They just aren't showing each other this love. They're putting other things above love, which is causing them to not live like a unified body in a fractured world, but actually to begin to look like the world. They're putting who they follow what they eat, and now their, their gifts over and above that which is truly most important to the church. This love that will last. So these 13 verses of Paul's, you've probably heard, uh, at, uh, read at weddings, and probably preached on at weddings, or probably preached on it in various different uh, types of scenarios. But it, this, these 13 verses have been called the hymn of love. And so Paul, in three stanzas, describes this type of love that will last. 
that it is to be who we are as the body of Christ. And so in three ways, he describes it to us. One, he describes the indispensability of love. Two, he describes to us the characteristics of love. And then three, he describes to us the permanence of love. So the indispensability, the characteristics, and the permanence of love. So first, the indispensability of love. In, in these first three verses, Paul is seeking to establish uh, that the necessity of love is what authenticates spiritual people. If you remember back in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul is saying, what do spiritual people look like? And then now he is describing it. And in chapter 13, he is saying, love is what establishes us as spiritual people. Which is a teaching from Jesus himself, from John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus says these words to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this has been Paul's guiding light throughout his letter. Paul isn't making this sort of love up that is, that is different from what Jesus commands his followers uh, in John chapter 13 because this love, Paul is saying, is the ultimate Christian marker. In chapter 8, verse 1 of Paul's letter, he, he praises the Corinthians for their knowledge, if you remember. But he also warns them in the, in, in the very same sentence that this same knowledge that I'm praising you for is also a knowledge that will puff you up. It's a knowledge that will make you prideful. But it's love that builds up. So the problem isn't with knowledge. The problem isn't with the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. The problem lies in how these things are lived out within the body of Christ, the church. So think about this in your own life. What do you possess or what do you think you possess that could divide you from this body? What do you possess? What gifts uh, may, uh, might you have that could actually divide the body? Maybe it is your knowledge. Maybe it is another gift that you have. Maybe it's your talent. Maybe it's your charisma. Maybe it's your take on things theologically. Well, in chapter 13, Paul is saying... It's love that is the marker of the spiritually mature Christian. Because love is what is indispensable. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul is asking the Corinthians um, essentially to consider a world without love. He's just saying, just imagine, imagine a world without love, Corinthians. And he does this by appealing to the gifts that the Corinthians view as more elite, the, the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy and, and gifts of faith and insight and things like that. And so we can break these, these gifts up into, into three parts uh, for each verse, for verse, for, for verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Uh, what we say in verse 1, what we know in verse 2, and then what we do in verse 3. So in verse 1, Paul directs his attention to the gift of speaking in tongues, a, a gift that is to be used to encourage the believers to build up the body. It's a gift that Paul says in chapter 14, verse 5, that we'll get to next week, that he wants all the Corinthians to have. He says that. And I say that to say that, that, that Paul isn't degrading the gifts here but he's showing his readers what comes across when love is missing from the use of these gifts. Look at verse 1. 
Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Meaning that no matter how good you are at speaking in tongues, and Paul goes so far as to say, even if you're speaking in the tongues of angels, even if you're speaking this heavenly language, if love is absent from its practice, it is just a lot of noise. The Greek word here uh, that is used for, for, for noise is a word that is also used to describe the roaring of the sea. So if you've ever heard the roaring of the sea, uh, you will know it is a deafening sound. Nothing else can be heard because of its sound and how loud it is. Another commentator suggested that the use of this word, the, the words noisy gongs and clanging cymbals is actually a reference to acoustic vases that were used in, in theaters during this time that were just placed around theaters to project the voice and, uh, and the music of actors and musicians around a theater. And so he says, speaking in tongues is a sound all right, technically speaking, but it is a mere echo, a reverberation, an empty sound coming out of a hollow, lifeless vessel without love. Now, it's not the gift of tongues necessarily that has become the noise that Paul is referring to. No, the noise is actually the person practicing the gift. Because the person practicing the gift is the one who does not have love. You see, love is not just another gift amongst all the other spiritual gifts that God gives to us. Paul says it's the more excellent way in chapter 12, verse 31. It's what undergirds the gifts. It's what, it's what infuses you and I. So love fills what we say, or at least it should, with necessary meaning. But love also matters in relation to what we know, our knowledge. Look at verse 2. Paul says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So the Corinthians and Corinthian culture during this time placed a high premium on intellect, on secret knowledge and insights. If you had these things, you were amongst the elites. You were looked up to. You were wise. You were sought out after. And these are what these gifts did for the church. It opened up ways in which the church could know God more deeply. And even so, Paul was unimpressed. And he asked them to consider all of this knowledge and all of this insight, all of this kind of secret understanding, and to imagine it without love. So I think we know what this looks like because I'm sure most of us have come across someone with great intelligence, lots of knowledge, a genius you might say, but they lacked kindness. They lacked humility. They lacked gentleness in their approach and how they spoke and how they dispensed this knowledge that they had been given. <clears throat> and then when we come up against them, when we interact with them, we walk away crushed and, like Paul, unimpressed because love is absent from this person. And because of this, Paul says, 
using strong language, they are nothing. They are nothing. Now, some of you in this room are extremely knowledgeable. We live in a time that we have access to anything we want. Books, websites, uh, podcasts, um, any sort of article that we want to get our hands on, any sort of subject that we want to know about. We live in a time now, praise God, that we can know about it. We can gain wisdom. We can gain knowledge, even when it has to do with the Bible. There's so many tools out there that people can use to understand the scriptures better. And yet if you take all of these things and you, and you gather all of this knowledge and you store all of this up into your mind, if you lack love, Paul says, all of it is nothing. All of it's nothing. Even you as a person are nothing. Now, nothingness here is the, the same idea that Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, when he says these words. He's talking to Christians. You are the salt of the earth. You are what uh, brings flavor into this world. You are, the, you are what uh, people are looking at. You are, you, are, you are what people are tasting and seeing uh, so that they know that the Lord is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So if love infuses what we say, and if love infuses what we know with necessary meaning, it also gives meaning to what we do. Look at verse 3. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So two two things Paul is addressing here that I think are are things that kind of get put up on a a higher pedestal. One is charity, and the other is uh, martyrdom, giving your life for something. So charity is something almost everyone is involved in, from the individual person to corporate America. And Paul says, if you're giving of all that you have, every last penny is not infused with love, you gain nothing from it. You gain nothing from giving up everything that you have. So, so essentially, if you're only doing it for the tax break at the end of the year, and so you wait to, to do all your giving until the end of the year because I'm going to get that tax break and I'm going to make the most uh, kind of money off of this, Paul says that's not love. If you're, if you're giving begrudgingly to something or to someone, Paul says that's not loving. If you're only giving so that you can kind of uh, uh, brag about it on social media. Paul says that's not loving. That's not, what, that's not what you're doing there. Love is not being communicated in those acts. Even if you're giving away everything that you have in that moment. This is not love. And then most of us would say martyrdom. giving your life for the gospel or just giving your life for something that you believe is the ultimate form of sacrifice. And if you don't believe me, just think about the holidays that we have um, to those who have served in our armed forces. We celebrate and honor those men and women who have given their life for their own country. And then within the church, we we celebrate and honor Christian brothers and sisters who have done this, who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Uh, John the Baptist, most of Jesus' disciples died a martyr's death. 
figures in church history like William Tyndale and Thomas uh, Cramner, and, and even in more modern history, men like Jim Elliott, who, were, who was killed by the, the, the Kuchua Indian tribe in Ecuador in 1956. Or even more recently, uh, the beheading of 21 Coptic Christians in Libya in 2015 on national television. And Paul says, even if you do make this ultimate sacrifice of giving up your life, if it is not driven by love, you gain nothing. So in all of these illustrations, Paul is getting at the is, is addressing the same thing here. He's addressing the same underlying issue, which is status before God. Which is which is always our default, isn't it? We are we are trying to please God with our life. We are trying to please God with our gifts and our acts, and we're we're wanting to gain some sort of assurance before Him with our life. And this is what the Corinthians were continuing to struggle with. So the elite of the Corinthian church believed if they followed a certain leader, if they avoided foods or if they practiced their freedom uh, in the ways that they felt was right or if they have the right spiritual gifts, that they somehow have a higher standing before God. Which is simply not true. And not biblical. The only thing the only thing that gets you a right standing before a holy God is not your gifts, is not the people you follow, it's not the family that you are involved in, it's not your good works, it's not how much money that you give away to the poor. It is only the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, a letter by Paul again to the Ephesian church. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because the love Paul is describing is a love that flows from God, that flows down from God in Christ towards his people. It does not rise up from us to God. It comes down to us from God in Christ. And so Jesus is the supreme example of love through the entirety of his earthly life, through his suffering, and especially in his death. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul goes on in, in verses 4 through 7 to give us the, the, the characteristics of this love in the second stanza of his hymn of love. Look at verses 4 through 7 with me. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So for Paul... Uh, love is not a theoretical, theological concept. For Paul, love is real and active. It's practical and it's rooted into reality. It only has meaning when we, we see it in action in the life of God in Christ Jesus or in the life of individual Christians. And the verbs that he uses here in verses 4 through 7 stress the action involved in Christian love. 
And if you notice, Paul moves between what love is and what love is not. And so love here is personified, which means love itself is patient. Love itself is kind. Love does not boast rather than the person who displays this love. So despite who you are, love will not change. This love that Paul is describing will not change. It will always be patient. It will always be kind. It will never boast. It's personified. And so love is patient is the first verb verb Paul uses, and it's something that he draws um, from God's patience towards us. Because that is what, where this love is birthed, out of, out of God. So throughout the Old Testament, this aspect of God's character is often highlighted. And I, I want to try to stress this because I think uh, sometimes we, we fall into the trap of thinking that the God of the Old Testament was this kind of mean old man who was just out to get people. And really, that does not describe the God of the Old Testament or the God of the Bible at all. And Paul is proving his point here because he's saying love arises from this God that we read about in the Old Testament. Nehemiah 9.17, speaking about Israel, he says these words, They, Israel, God's people, refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So they're walking in blatant disobedience to God. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, patient, or that could be translated as well as slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even in their disobedience, God is patient and loving, abounding in steadfast love towards his disobedient people. Joel 2.13, another Old Testament passage, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, patient and abounding in steadfast love. So as a people, when we show great patience towards each other, we are not just showing off just how patient we are so people can say, man, he is really patient. When we show patience towards others, we are showing them how God is patient towards them, even in their disobedience, even in their sin. God is patiently waiting. The second thing Paul says here is that love is kind. So within this kindness, Paul is speaking of the continuing action of the one who loves, which means, and I think some of it, I think all of us are, are guilty of this at some point in, in, in time with people that we love, because it means we don't just simply say uh, we love someone and then just go on from there and just treat them however we want. And this is where kindness settles into the equation because kindness is, is, is showing this ongoing love that you say that you have for this individual, individual or this group of people. It is an ongoing reality of this love, this kindness that God shows towards us. Because kindness, like patience, is a reflection of God. So Paul just tells us what love is, and now he shifts to what love is not in the second half of verse 4 through the first part of verse 6. He says it does not envy. Love is not longing for what others have uh, or longing for the spiritual gifts that, that others had. Maybe, maybe that is something you struggle with. Maybe you, you look over there and say, I, I wish I had that spiritual gift. I wish I could be up in front of people like that, or I wish I could administer in, in ways that that person is doing. And love does not envy in that way. It does not boast about the gifts and abilities they have. Uh, it isn't arrogant because uh, they recognize that all is a gift from God. 
It's not earned, so I can't boast in that. I can't be arrogant about the gifts that I have. It's not rude. And now this word rude here is only, is only used here and in chapter 7, verse 36, uh, when Paul talks about a man uh, not behaving properly toward a potential wife. He's just using her for, for, uh, for sexual pleasure. And so Paul, essentially what he is saying here is when he says love is not rude, means that you are not treating others in a way that goes against the imago Dei. You are not treating others in a way that goes against uh, the way in which they were created in the image of God. And so when you treat someone rudely, you are treating them in a way that is opposite to how they were created in God's image. Love does not insist on its own way. It, 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 uh, let's do whatever makes me comfortable. I want to do what makes me comfortable, what, what puts me at ease. It isn't self-seeking. It's, it's not looking out for number one. It's not looking out for, for the needs of myself, but it's looking towards the needs and desires of other people. That's love. It's not irritable, meaning it's not provoked to anger. Think about how irritated you get when someone is, is going slow in front of you. I, I experienced this last night when I was going to pick up my daughter from her social events. I was irritated with the people in the parking lot, and I think they deserved it. But think about that. How often does that settle into your heart, not just for strangers driving on the road, but people who live in your own house, people in this church, people you work with. And oftentimes we think we're justified in that. Well, I have a right to be irritated because they're an idiot. Or they're doing this thing that's wrong against me. But Paul says love isn't irritable. Love isn't resentful either. And this is a, an accounting term that Paul is using here, uh, which he says, love doesn't record wrongs. And you might think in your, in your mind, oh, well, I don't have a list in a journal somewhere. Some of you might. You might want to burn that. But more likely, you have a list in your mind against people in your life of how they've wronged you, how they've hurt you, how they've sinned against you. And in whatever interaction that you have with them, that list pops up. And it makes you have a difficult time loving that person. But Paul says, love isn't resentful. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. And know that if you are keeping a record of wrong against whoever it is in your life, forgiveness hasn't truly taken place if resentment is present. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And here, there's a, there's a subtlety here that Paul is getting at because rejoicing at wrongdoing can only happen when you are blinded by your own sin. Because we all, we all slip into some sort of wrongdoing, don't we? None of us are, are, are guiltless in that. We all sin. We all fall. And so you have to be blinded by your own sin so that you're able to rejoice at someone else's failures. So for the Corinthians, that was uh, eating food offered to idols, ignoring poorer brothers and sisters at the Lord's table, boasting in their gifts. That was what was blinding their eyes where they could look at their brothers and sisters and rejoice at how inept they were. To rejoice in their sin. To rejoice in the fact that they were not as good as they were. And so all of this had compiled into making the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth a place of performance and a place of judgment. And so when you walked through the doors of the church in Corinth, that was the culture 
That was, that was what filled the air in the room. It was performance and judgment. And it was only for the elite. So if you had the right gifts and you said the right things and you ate the right food and you hung out with the right people, then you were the elite. Then you were the ones that people looked at. And so essentially what the church in Corinth was turning into was just another uh, avenue of the world. It was just another way, a place where you could go practice the things of the world. It was nothing different. Rather than it should have been a place of love and grace where, where all were welcome to its doors. The person who can't seem to get it right. The person who is constantly screwing up. The person who is addicted. The person who has anger issues. The person who is uh, who's late often. The church welcomes all. And so if love is shaping what you say and what you think, and what you do, it will look more and more like what Paul describes in verse 7. A love that bears all things. A love that believes all things. Meaning, uh, not just believing anything and everything uh, you know, outside of Christian doctrine and what God's Word says, but it is believing the gospel Uh, to be true, and that what Jesus says, that he is coming to make all things new, is happening in your midst. That's what love does. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and endures all things. And while love is being personified here by Paul, he, he later says in his letter to the Colossians, that this same sort of love is actually what knits us together as the body of Christ. This love knits us together as Christ's body. Because this sort of love is what the world is searching for. This sort of love is is what they're grasping at in their songs and in their films and in their poems and in in their books. And it's a love that is only found in God. And a love that is exhibited in and through God's people. This is why Jesus doesn't say in John 13, they will know you are my disciples because you speak in tongues. It's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say they will know you are my disciples because you have good preaching or good music or you're really nice or you possess great knowledge. That's how they'll know. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says the watching world will know, and the world is watching. The watching world will know you are my disciples, that you are disciples of Jesus, the Savior of the world, by this love that you have for one another. That's how they'll know. I love that our final stanza of this hymn of love describes as permanent. So again, love is something we say we all want. I don't think there's anybody in this room who would say, I don't want to be loved. We all want it. We all long for it. And when we do have it, uh, we don't want it to go anywhere. We'll do anything to make love stay. Because that's what we've desired. And yet at the very same time, as much as we want it and desire it and we want it to stay, it does still feel like a fleeting thing, doesn't it? That it's just out of our grasp. That it's slipping through our fingers. And the reason for this is is because of us, because we struggle to love each other well. We, We get angry. How many of you were angry before you came in here today? We say things we don't mean. We hold grudges. We gossip. We criticize. We 
we yell and we argue with each other. We give, we give people the silent treatment, cold shoulders. And yet Paul says in verse 8, love never ends. It never fails. It never goes away. It's permanent. Unlike everything else in this world that will fade, this love will last. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity when he's, he's speaking about God's love for us. He says, quote, Though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not come and go. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore... It is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. And this is the type of love that Paul has been talking about. And now he brings it all back around at the, at the close of this chapter. He brings it all back around to the gifts as he holds these, these gifts holds them up against the love that he has just described. And here are his conclusions. Look at verse 8. Prophecy will pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away as well. That's his conclusion. When he holds it up to this love that he's just described, he says all of these gifts will be gone. Now, this doesn't mean gifts are unimportant or, or not needed in the church. They are needed. They, they're given to us by the Spirit to build up the body of Christ. We already know that, uh, contextually speaking, back in chapter 12, we've already been told that. What this means is that they are incomplete. They cannot fulfill everything that we want them to. Look at verses 9 through 10. Paul says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So Paul has already been using in uh, times language here, eschatological language, uh, in, in these verses already. Uh, in verse 8, when he says, they will pass away, he's actually referring to the final judgment day of God. He's speaking about the end of time here. He's already used this same word in chapter 2, verse 6, when he is speaking of God's final judgment of the rulers of this age as well. He says this, that they will pass away. The rulers of this age... For as much power as they possess and they have and they wield over this world, uh, at the end of the age, they will pass away. They will be no more, just as the gifts that God has given to us will be no more. So the perfect, that phrase there, the perfect in verse 10, refers to the coming of Christ and the perfection of all things, that Christ is coming to make all things new, and that he will usher in at the end of this age. That is the perfect, the fullness of God in Christ. And all that will, will remain, all that is per permanent, is not just love, it's, it's our existence as God's people, as believers. It's, it's all that he is making new and love. The only thing that survives sort of out of this, this list that Paul is talking about in chapter 13 is love. And Paul uses this analogy in verse 11 to, to reinforce the point uh, he's making here. When he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So just to be clear here, whatever your take is on speaking in tongues or, or, or prophecy or, or, or faith or, or whatever it is, Paul isn't saying speaking in tongues and prophecy are childish. 
That's not what he's saying. Or any of the other gifts, for that matter. And, and he's not saying that the Corinthians should give them up or, or that they are going to cease here on this, on this planet. Uh, the, the then of being a child that Paul talks about and the now of being a man is not describing one who is immature spiritually and the one who is now mature spiritually. That somehow you have to reach and attain this, this, uh, this sort of maturity that Paul says. That's not what he's talking about here in this particular part of, of, of his letter. Because the, content, the context makes clear that the picture of the child refers to how Christians are now. And the picture of the adult refers to how Christians will be then. When the perfect comes. So Paul is just essentially giving the Corinthian church and us as, as 21st century readers this kind of picture of, of, of the already and the not yet. We're still children. We're still partial. We're not complete yet. And he follows up this analogy with an illustration in verse 12 to just kind of hammer this point home when he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul is saying that now is, is a, we can still see the, the reality of God in Christ here on earth now, but it is dim. It's a little foggy. But one day face to face, it will all be clear. Everything will make sense. All things will be full. We will be fully known as God's people. And so what Paul is trying to do here for his readers is to get them to think within a, a Christian eschatological framework. It's kind of a Christian view of, of what is to come. That the world one day is going to end. That, the, that, this, that right now we are in the second advent. That one day Jesus is coming back. And so Paul wants to, to kind of get them into this sort of framework to put everything else into perspective, into its right perspective, especially the gifts that they are trying to elevate above everything else. That even though the gifts are needed, what's most important and what's most needed is love. So the Beatles were right. All you need is love. Because this love is what we possess now in the present as children and what we will possess then as adults because it's permanent. It's not going anywhere. And it's this love that redefines the gifts we have as a church. It reorients them. So if you, at any level, were thinking uh, that you were special because you had these particular gifts and that it gave you some sort of standing before God, I don't know of anybody who's really wrestling with that at this moment in time, but maybe you are. Love is meant to redefine how you think about these gifts. Because you're to be using these gifts, not for yourself, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ. To build up the body of Christ to bring them to maturity in their faith. But more importantly, this love redefines your life in two ways. And then I'll close. One, this love should move you to action. You should love others as Christ loved you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love. What sort of love? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So love should move you. This love that Christ has for you should move you to action. But this is also more than behavior change. It's more than action but, but, but rather, it's learning how to be in this love that Paul describes. To know 
the love that Christ has for you. Because to know the love of Christ is to be embodied by it. That no matter who you are or what you've done or what you sort of carry in here or what you're carrying around in your life throughout the week, that Jesus does love you. He loves you. And only out of knowing that Knowing only out of, out of this being will there be any sort of action. And this is why Paul calls it the more excellent way. Because it's the way of the new kingdom. It's the way of Jesus who is coming again. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a mighty God. You are the creator of all things, both in heaven and on earth. You are the creator of each person in this room. You are the creator of all things uh, seen and unseen, ideas, kings and kingdoms, uh, all of those things. Uh, You are mighty. And yet you love us. You have shown your love to us by giving us your only begotten son who came into this world to save sinners such as us. And so God, I pray that this is what would embody us as a community. That it wouldn't be how cool we are. It wouldn't be what kind of job we have or what hobbies we we take on. It wouldn't be how much money we make. It wouldn't be uh, anything like that, but it would only be this love that you have shown to us in Christ that defines the culture of this church and each individual in it. That our doors would be open wide because of this love. And it's only a love that we have access to because of what Jesus has done. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. So every Lord's Day, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together.